The Gospels don't tell us a whole lot about what took place on Saturday after Good Friday. Uh, We do know it was a Sabbath day, and we do know that the disciples uh, were afraid, and they were hiding, and they were feeling exposed and ashamed and uh, alone. And so I thought this text would be fitting as a reflection on what is often called Holy Saturday or Great Saturday or the Great Sabbath or Black Saturday. I would not. Right? So thanks for being here. I know it's um, a sacrifice. Um, So um, we are this semester, if this is your first time at RUF, every week we look at the Bible, uh, as Colin said before, and we are looking at um, different places in the Scripture, the Christian Scripture, Old and New Testament, where God asks human beings questions. And we're going to pick up uh, where we left off uh, last week. Uh, God asks a question of Adam, who is, if you don't know the story, in the first couple chapters of the Bible, you have a man and a woman named Adam and Eve, and they are tempted. They're given a commandment by God, and they disobey it. And we're going to pick up kind of before and after what we looked at last week when God came looking for Adam and Eve, saying, where are you? So uh, let's start Genesis 3, chapter, uh, verse 4. And um, God has said, you can eat anything you want in this garden that I've given you, if you don't know the story, except for one tree, don't eat from that one. And um, um, this serpent appears and starts talking, a, a snake uh, appears and starts talking to the woman, uh, Eve. In verse 4, we pick up, but the serpent said to the woman, and she was like, we can't eat that because we're going to die. And uh, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, uh, that woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I, and, and, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, that serpent, he deceived me. And I ate. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, what a strange talking snakes. What are we talking about? And yet for millennia, your people have said this is the truth that strikes the very core of our being in the opening pages of this book we call the Bible. How can it be? We speak to us tonight, wherever we're coming from, and heal our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, I love, you guys watch The Office? Are you you too young for this? It's on on Netflix, and it's the thing. I've always loved that show. Um, a, A weird friend of mine got me into the British version before, the American version. I was so disappointed by like the uh, the the original episode of the American. I was like, this is going to be terrible. And then they sort of made it their own thing. It was wonderful. Um, but I, I, I'm just going to. I land in this camp. You know, you know the phrase "jumping the shark." You know what it means. 
Raise your hand if you don't. It's okay. No shame. Um, so uh, Jumping the Shark is a reference to like the point at which a story or a series isn't good anymore, and it's a reference to the show Happy Days, where Fonzie, who's this effortlessly cool dude uh, throughout the entire series, and then they like try really hard to make him cool and attractive, and he um, water skis uh, and jumps over a shark like uh, Evil Knievel, and it was like this desperate effort to, for the series to like kind of hang on to itself. And from that point on, it's like it wasn't very good anymore. And I would say that the point at which The Office jumped the shark was an episode where Michael Scott drives his car into a pond, uh, and he does so because a GPS tells him to turn right, even though there's not a road. He obeys the GPS, even though Dwight is yelling at him not to do it, and he drives uh, the car, uh, a rental car into a lake or a pond, sinking it into the muck and the water. In Genesis chapter 3, like very start, this is when humanity jumps the shark. Right? This is when it's like, this is not very good anymore. This was awesome, and now it's terrible. Um, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, why are you water skiing over a shark? You're like a leather jacket guy that hits um, jukeboxes and makes them play. Um, no human being would, write, would actually listen to the GPS and insist upon following its instructions and driving into a lake. Um, and that's just what Adam and Eve do. And like Michael Scott, they listen to the wrong voice and do what it says rather than a more trustworthy voice. And it's this voice that calls out to them. All of us have these voices, and it's a voice that is questioning and challenging their knowledge, their epistemology. Epistemology is a philosophical word. If you're not a philosophy major, that means how do I know what I know? What do I trust? And how do I know that I can trust it? And first, it's this voice of deception. It's a voice, according to the Bible, of a lie. And so God comes asking, our series is questions God asks, and he asks them, who told you that? Who told you that? God is asking Adam and Eve, where did you get your information? And why did you trust it? Because we're always listening to some voice or another, and Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. Quick sidebar, um, the serpent, if you don't know, if you're new to Christianity, you've never heard the story before, the serpent is a physical manifestation of an evil entity that the Bible throughout Cover to cover refers to often as Satan or the Satan. Uh, and he is the very um, embodiment of evil and wrongdoing. Um, by the way, um, we're not supposed to think that the Garden of Eden, when God first created man and woman, was Narnia and animals spoke. I get that it's weird. Let's get coffee. I understand it's, it's very odd that there's a talking snake in the story. I get it. You're going to base your life on the story of a talking snake. Um, but the very presence of a talking snake to the original readers who did not live with speaking animals, they would have been like, something's weird here. Like, second page of this book, like, that's off, that's not right, snakes don't talk. And it's supposed to be a clue to the reader and to the listener that something, like, the music gets eerie and weird. That's what, for that time and place, that's what it would have been. Okay, so um, if you, we won't look at the verses, but previously the serpent challenges Eve and he says, you know, did God actually say you can't eat of any of these trees in this whole garden? Like, what a jerk. Which isn't what he said. He said you can eat from all of them except for one. And as he says, well, you know, he's not that strict. But he did say we can't eat of this one tree and we shouldn't even touch it. Which, by the way, isn't what he actually said. He said don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. So she's kind of taking the bait of this deceptive evil entity. And going ahead, yeah, I mean, God's like a little... He's a little uptight, but, like, we're good. Um, she takes some of the bait, and then um, in verse 4, which we read, he immediately 
once she's begun to take the bait, he says, like, he directly contradicts the command of God, where God says, don't eat this. If you eat it, you'll die. He says, you will not surely die. God's not actually, like, actually going to do that. Um, you can't really trust what he says. You can't really believe his word. He, would, he wouldn't do that. And by the way, like, the reason he told you that, he goes on in verse 5, like, God, he didn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows if you eat it, you'll be just like him. You will be like God. Who wants to be like God? Doesn't the Bible tell us to be like God? We're kind of supposed to be like God, but not like God. He's, he's telling him, like, God's holding out on you. He has bad motives. He's untrustworthy. He's holding you back. He's keeping you down. And Eve and her husband, Adam, who is there with her, they have two realities presented before them. God's reality and the serpent's reality. And then they agree with the serpent. They opt for his choice. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit was desirable. It's beautiful. It's delicious. It's going to make me better. It's going to make me wise. Serpent, you're right. And I'm going to call the shots from now on. And Adam and Eve do it. And then at that point, if you know the story of the Bible, everything's broken, everything goes to crap. The shark is jumped. But immediately God comes asking, what we looked at last week, first, where are you? Come on, guys, come out of the bushes. Stop hiding behind fig leaves. And then after Adam answers him in verse 11, God says, who told you that? I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Where did you get your information? What is your source of knowledge, Adam? Who are you trusting? Who are you believing? And we have our own version of this. We want to say, like, I could never believe in a God who dot, dot, dot. You ever heard someone say that? Ever said it yourself? I could never believe in a God who judges. Why not? Not liking something doesn't make it not real. I hate cancer. It's distasteful. Doesn't mean it's not real. It's a weird thing to say. But we do it all the time with God. It's like religion is like this cafeteria, like we're going into Sadler and we're choosing the things that we like. Well, what if, like, but is that really a good way to decide what's true about reality? Let's get coffee. We define God how we want. And so there's this irony that happens on the second page of the Bible that you and I do every day, which the Bible says God is there and he creates human beings and he says, you're my image. And then we go around and go, no, we're going to make you in our image. You're going to be the God that I like. You're going to be the God that I want. It's this weird reversal. And we do it just intuitively. Uh, Is your idea of God based on his self-revelation to you him saying, here I am. Or is he on your imagination of it you wish he was or won't allow him to be anything other than? Um, quick objection I want to address. Um, this might be something that you like hate about Christianity. Like Christianity, like Christians are stupid. They just read the Bible and they're like, oh, well, God said it. That's it. Um, but um, I, I want to say like, Whatever your worldview, and we can like, get coffee and talk more about it, if you really press into your worldview, I mentioned this last week in response to a Q&A, whatever your view of truth, your epistemology, if you will, it's based on something that you can't really prove. It's taken on faith at some 
level. We all appeal to some authority or another. We believe in trust and smart people. Like, we make fun of flat earthers, but could you actually prove them wrong? <laughs> really? Maybe? Um, uh, there's so much that we take uh, as a given because we're trusting other people with calculators, right? And I'm not saying those people are wrong. I think there's good reason to trust them. That's a, a longer discussion. But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, a, a theoretical physicist who used to be in RUF would, would say that you can ask why five times. How does gravity work? Because of some things. And then, well, why does that do the thing? And then, well, well because of this thing and that thing. And then after five whys, the answer is because I say so, right? Because like, it's just magic. Like, science is just, like, magic in detail, right? <laughs> it's like, we don't, there's so much we don't know, and, and we, we, we take it. And those may be reasonable assumptions that we take, but my point to you is that you trust in something. Like, you take certain things as a given, and Christians are not the only ones who are like, I'm going to trust a higher authority than me, and we should get coffee, and that's, I'm, that's very simplistic and a caricature, but, like, let's talk. Um, but God is not just asking, whose information are you trusting, like, how do you know what you know? What's, what's the basis of your epistemology, Adam? Um, but he's, there's a second half of the question. Who told you that you were naked? I feel like this is really the heart of it. Who told you that you were naked? The first is an epistemological question. The second is an existential question. Your experience of reality. There's the voice of deception that says, God's a liar, listen to me. And then there's the voice of shame. God has told you that you're good this way, and I'm telling you, actually, no, he's holding out on you, you're not enough. God looks at Adam and Eve and he says, this is very good. I like it. I'm into this. This is my image. I'm, this, is, this world and these two humans, perfect. So, like, the serpent, Satan, he didn't explicitly say, you're naked. He just sort of sets them up uh, to find it. But he does subtly shame them. Um, how? You will be like God. If you break his commandment, you'll be like him. The sad irony is that they're already like him in the way that they're supposed to be. They're in his image. But what's he saying to Eve and Adam, who's there with her? You're not enough the way you are. You are deficient. You are naked. And God is coming and he's saying, who told you that? Who told you you're naked? As a friend of mine says, who pointed at your junk and laughed in the locker room? Who belittled you? Who mocked you? Who said the way that God made you is not enough? Um, Brene Brown, she's a sociologist at the University of Houston. She's written a bunch of books, and she's on TV, and her TED Talk is, like, huge. Um, one of the first, like, TED Talks that, like, exploded YouTube. But she says this. Um, Given the topics I study, and she does shame research. She speaks and writes on shame. I know that I'm onto something when folks, as she's describing what she's researching, when folks look away, when they quickly cover their faces with their hands, or respond with, ouch, or shut up, get out of my head. The last is normally how people respond when they hear or they see the phrase, never blank enough. Never blank enough. It only takes a few seconds before people fill in the blank with their own tapes, their own voices, 
Never good enough, never perfect enough, never thin enough, never powerful enough, never successful enough, never smart enough, never certain enough, never safe enough, never beautiful enough, never extraordinary enough. You fill in the blank. What is your not enough? Lynn Twist, um, she's a... She writes on scarcity and global activism. She's a a fundraiser for global causes. And she talks about the great lie of scarcity, this idea that there's not enough. She writes this. For me, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or to examine it. We spend most of the hours of the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we sit up in our beds, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we get to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or what we didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and we wake up to the reverie of lack. Not enough sleep. Not enough time. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, of our greed, of our prejudice, and of, I love this phrase, of our arguments with life. Do you hear what she's saying? And I would switch that to not just your arguments with life, but to your arguments with God. Not enough. I need more. And it drives the sense of, you see, hear how shame drives pride. I deserve more. I deserve better. I want to do better than them. I want to beat them. I want to show that I'm worthy. Because somebody told you, you're not enough. Where does your tape come from? What is the voice? The silent voice that like walks around with you all the time. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you're not enough? Who told you the big lie? It might be a coach or a teacher. It's probably your parents. At least one of them. Nothing was ever good enough. Even if you did your best, there was like this little criticism, this little passive-aggressive remark. Could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be me. Be a pastor or yourself or just the world around you in general. Be like this. Measure up to that. Um, Let's see. I've got a long quote here, but I want to Yeah, let's do it. Oh, gosh. No. Can I go a little long? Because I feel like this matters. Is it cool? Since we're literally talking about nakedness, I want to talk a second about body image, um, which is uh, stereotypically like a female issue, but it's not. Um, It's it's both of us. And now my computer machine is flaking on me. Oh, come on. Really? This isn't happening. Oh, come on. The screen went blank. It's like six years old. Here we go. Nope. Oh, come on, Lord. There we go. There we go. All right. 
Well, okay, here we go. You guys know who Tina Fey is? Please tell me you know who Tina Fey is. Right, 30 Rock. All right, so her book, Bossy Pants, which is amazing, so good. Um, but she talks about sort of this moment in history when, like, J-Lo and Beyonce came on the scene in terms of, like, female body image is what she's talking about. And, and like, they got a little junk in the trunk, okay? Uh, and she talks about that. By the way, she's going to refer to, like, ethnicities and stuff that could be, it was 10 years ago, and, like, now it's offensive. I don't, you know, I don't know, but, like, I'm reading a quote from Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. Please holster your pistols, and I'm going to use... A moderate curse word that's the safest curse word. It doesn't even have four letters. I'm going to read the quote, okay? Don't kill me. Um, she talks about J-Lo and Beyonce like, becoming popular into mainstream culture. And she says, and from that day forward, after these two women became embraced, women embraced their diversity and realized that all shapes and sizes are beautiful. <laughs> no. I'm totally messing with you. All Beyonce and J-Lo have done is add to the laundry list of attributes that women must have to qualify as beautiful. Now every girl is expected to have Caucasian blue eyes, full Spanish lips, a classic button nose, hairless Asian skin with a California tan, a Jamaican dance hall ass, long Swedish legs, small Japanese feet, the abs of a lesbian gym owner, the hips of a nine-year-old boy, and the arms of Michelle Obama with the breasts of a Barbie doll. The person closest to actually achieving this look is Kim Kardashian, who, as we all know, was made in a lab by Russian scientists to sabotage our athletes. Um, I love Kim, by the way. She's a believer now, so like, she's on our team. Don't make fun of her. Tina, uh, leave that girl alone. Um, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Who told you that you were naked? Media, Instagram other people, and it's not just women. Dudes, like, I turned 40 last March, and I'm getting, like, Facebook knows I'm 40, and they're, like, sending me all these testosterone, ED supplement advertisements. I'm like, was Dawn searching for, like, a, is, this, is this, like, oh, I'm 40, I'm 40, okay. Whew. Um, and God comes asking Adam and you and me along with him, who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Who shamed you? Who is defining you? Who are you living to please? Them or me? And to counter that voice of deception and shame, he brings another voice, a voice of truth and of grace. Um, so often we think that the way out of shame, like all shame, it's pretending that there's no guilt at all. Like, I'm fine. I didn't, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but I didn't really do anything wrong, you know? Um, we're fine. But what's interesting is God doesn't do that. Like, he knows that their sin has to be dealt with. There's a real source to their shame in this situation. And um, the way through shame is not to counter one lie with another one, but with the truth. This is, again, Brene Brown. Not writing, she's not like a Christian author. She says this. Shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, Aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. Do you hear all those things she rattles off? Those are self-directed and others-directed. You hear the pain, the anger that's going in and out because of shame. But then she says this. But here's what you, here's what you need to know even more. Guilt, not shame, but guilt, 
is inversely correlated to those same things. You understand what she said? Shame increases all these things that we are like, ooh, that's ugly. And she says, actually, guilt helps resolve those things. The distinction between shame and guilt, shame is like, I am worthless. Guilt is, I did wrong. The difference? I am worthless versus, I did wrong, and I can own it. I am culpable. Guilt, the admission of wrongdoing, and then, of course, seeking forgiveness in light of that, is actually a healing factor. The central healing factor of overcoming addiction, bullying, suicide, and disorders, and so forth. They're not that simple. You can't just be like, I'm sorry, and then all those things go away. Let's, let's get coffee. Um, and so God, he, he says, who told you that? But then he follows it up with, did you, did you do the thing that I told you to not to do? Did you do the... I told you, how do you know you're negative? Like, I feel like you probably, maybe you did the thing. And they blame shift back and forth. Like the woman, she, and she's like the snake, and he did it. But what's interesting is that, that as you read through the story, like there are consequences, but God doesn't just throw them away. He doesn't throw Adam and Eve away. He comes to their rescue, and he promises them a savior. He gives them clothing. I'm going to kill an animal. I'm going to clothe you. I'm going to cover your nakedness. This is all, okay, now I've got to speed up. Let's get coffee. Fast forwarding, like Christ is going to be the ultimate fulfillment. Like I'm going to send my son, he's going to die, he's going to cover you. Um, Isaiah 61 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Remember, nakedness is the, the little shame circle. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself out, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He's saying that God, like, think about people on their wedding day and how, like, like that's the time to do it up. And Isaiah says, God, is, God has dressed me like a bride, like a groom. The voice of Scripture goes on not to shame us, but to tell us who we are, who are you listening to, because we are of Christ and in Christ through his gospel. And the voice of grace, there's a voice of deception, there's a voice of shame, and then there's the voice of grace and truth. And the Bible tells us that in Christ, you are a new creation. You're not naked. Starting back at the beginning, you're a new creation. It's a creation story. You have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It tells you that if God is for you, who can be against you, even though Satan said he was against Adam and Eve? You are his workmanship, his treasured possession, not never enough, but a treasure. That he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that those he has set free are free indeed. We're not the slaves of a taskmaster, but we've been set free to frolic and to dance and to be. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not even our guilt. And not even your shame. And so, I'm sorry I went a little long. We cut a song because I knew it was going to go long. As you think of God, and as you think of yourself, and as you think of the people around you, whose voice are you going to listen to? To tell you who you are. Because you're going to listen to something. And God has something better for you. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are true and good, that we can trust you, uh, but you're not just like trustworthy and true, you're, you're so kind.
And you're so gracious in all these things around us, whether it's like school or as we talk about body image and feeling like failures and feeling like worthless, feeling insecure and just wanting to compete with everybody around us. And you offer us freedom and you offer us forgiveness and you offer us love. And so I pray, God, for everyone here that we would, that we would run towards love, that we would run out of our insecurity and our fear and our shame, um, and that we would run to something better, and that better is you. That we wouldn't believe um, ourselves or, the, or Instagram or whatever, but we would trust your word, that we are who you say we are, and that in Christ um, we have it all. And we pray this in your name. Hello.